0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy, the 34th chapter. You may be seated. But dear friends in Christ, this is actually one of these weird accounts in Scripture where we know that there are two authors writing kind of in the same moment. The first is Moses and the second is Joshua. And you know this because, well, Moses, right in the middle of this passage, dies, and you can't really write anything if you're dead. Besides that, how would Moses know that no other prophet has arisen like Moses in all of Israel if Moses is dead? So we have two authors, which is really kind of cool, Moses and Joshua, two men who had been appointed prophet and judge over Israel, two men, to lead people to and into the promised land. And of these two men, there would be no one greater for many, many years, at least not in terms of their leadership. Now, we know, of course, I think we know, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophet that would arise, the one who does the signs and the miracles and the terrors. Jesus is that fulfillment. But what about men like Moses and Joshua? What about their leadership? Now Joshua certainly was a leader on par with Moses. At least it seems that the the people rebelled against Joshua, perhaps a, a little bit less than they rebelled against Moses and all that he had told them. And between the two of them, until David came along, there really was no greater leader, no one that united Israel like them. But if that's how we're going to look at these two men... We have a problem, kind of a big problem, actually, because we see it through Moses's life and we see it after Joshua's death that that Israel, as the book of Judges is wont to say, her people did what was right in their own eyes. You see, they had been moving at least through toward Israel for, for 40 years now, through this desert to to a place where God had promised that they would be and and be safe. And Israel was named after, of course, uh, this Jacob character that we have in the scripture. Jacob is is one that God loved very much, uh, uh, one that God promised all the promises of, of this world to. But Jacob became somebody that ended up in Egypt. And of course, in those 400 years, Pharaoh forgot They forgot Jacob, forgot Israel. He probably had no idea how Israel came into existence in Egypt, except that they were there now as slaves. And so Moses ended up taking this Israel out by God's power. He delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. And now by their disobedience, they were forced to wander in the desert until all that generation that was willfully defied against God and all of their sin had died. I mean, it could have been that Israel had been let out of Egypt, and all of a sudden they found themselves in Israel. If only they had listened, if only they had obeyed, if only they hadn't rebelled. But that's not how the story goes. I mean, Moses was not immune in any way either to this defiance. It was kind of endemic for the people of Israel. God had told Moses to speak to the rock that water would come out, but Moses In his anger struck the rock. And because of that disobedience, God promised that Moses would not enter the promised land. And we kind of think that that's an overreaction on God's part, right? Hitting a rock rather than speaking to it. But Paul tells us that the rock that accompanied Israel, giving water, is Christ. And so if that's the case, then Moses struck Christ, the son of God. And that picture of Moses striking Christ is so tied to the crucifixion. And that was obviously the greatest disobedience ever. So Moses, by doing this, broke the law of God. He broke God's will, what God wanted him to do. And it led to, in a very real way, the death of Christ. And so Moses even seemed to do what was right in his own eyes. Now, Joshua seems to have learned a few lessons from Moses, maybe a little bit more holy in his life than Moses. I mean, Moses had been a murderer. He didn't circumcise his son so that the angel of the Lord was trying to kill him. Moses was too lenient on his brother in their idolatry. Moses was Prone to anger and overreaction, he made excuses for himself all the time, like he was a stutterer. Moses is not exactly a paragon of virtue, but Joshua, one of the faithful spies to go and search out the land of Israel, that promised land, he seems to, well, be a little bit more holy. And yet, despite all of the wonderful things that Joshua did in leading the people Israel into the Promised Land, the people really only gave him lip service. He wasn't the leader that I think everyone needed. After all, the people under Joshua's leadership went off and worshiped different gods, they fell prey to the temptations of the flesh. When it came to the people that were living among them, they did not obey God in any way, shape, or form. When he said to Israel to strike all the people down of the city that they were taking over, they didn't do quite that. Or when he said to destroy all of the plunder, they didn't do that either. And that's okay. These are problems because they're failures in, in leadership. To not have the people do the things that you're leading them into, that's a failure of leadership. And certainly, it's a failure of the people. but, But Moses and Joshua are responsible for the people. And they were sinners. It's no surprise then that the things that they did were sinful. And that's kind of why Jesus is a surprise for us. People looked at Jesus and realized that he was a prophet. I don't know that everybody realized that he was the Son of God, but everybody realized he was a prophet. And no one expects a prophet, much less this prophet above all prophets, to be anything different than the other ones. And if the other ones are sinful, then, well, we would expect Jesus to be sinful too. And yet, Jesus is sinless. That's a surprise. Now, Moses is able in our reading to see all of Israel, all the promised land that God had promised to give to his beloved people, the the land through which he would bring forth the line of the Messiah. Moses was given to see all of it. And still, Moses didn't live righteously. He couldn't live in a holy way. Joshua was to take the people Israel into the promised land to destroy the people there, but still he could not live in a righteous way. He couldn't live a holy life by his own merit. But both of these men show us something greater because they point us to Jesus. Moses being the prophet par excellence and Joshua literally sharing the name of Jesus. Joshua and Jesus are actually the exact same name. It's just how we translate Jesus from Hebrew to Aramaic to greek to latin and then finally into english that we get jesus but jesus is actually yeshua or Joshua, and joshua is there so both of these men moses and joshua show us jesus they point us that or point to us that yeah they were sinners but there's redemption for such such sinners as these And they show us that there's a way that they will enter the promised land. Not a land of this earth, but a land of the earth which is to come. Now Moses had been taken, I mean this is where he differs from Joshua. He had been taken up into the presence of God up on the mountains a few times. And I heard it once said, and I, and I like it. I can't prove it, but I like it. And I'm going to share with you one theory as to when Moses went up on the mountain with God, that he was somehow taken in that moment into the future to stand with Jesus at his transfiguration. I mean, because God is eternal, he can bend the rules of space and time. And it seems like, at least in one of these instances, Moses had a very clear vision of heaven, and heaven is clearly defined in the scriptures as wherever Jesus is, that presence of Jesus. So it's possible Moses was taken to the transfiguration while he was alive. Although it's also possible that Moses somehow was taken from heaven and given to Jesus there on the mountain, and to tell him about the Exodus. Luke calls that Jesus' departure the Exodus, his death. It's all about what's happening soon, his death in Jerusalem. So, either one, Moses has a vision in which he's taken to the Transfiguration, or Moses is in heaven and he's brought back to the Transfiguration. Either one could be true. Don't really know. What we do know is that Moses was given amazing visions of what would happen, not just that the Israel of God would enter into this promised land, a land that they could literally walk into, but that they would enter the promised land of eternal rest. Moses was given that and he tried his best to teach the people, don't rely on your own power, but rely on God. And you might think that that's weird because Moses is considered as the great lawgiver. I mean, after all, all 613 commandments from God that the people had to obey came out of Moses' mouth to those people. But the point of the law isn't just to say, do this and you'll live. That's part of it. But the point of the law is to show Israel that they couldn't do it. To increase trespass so that they need God even more. Now every so often Israel would realize that they had broken the law and they would repent and they would turn and they would do rightly but more often than not in hearing the law the response of Israel was all that the Lord has said we will do. Oops. And they made their vows before their God that they couldn't follow through. They thought they could obey. Now of course Talking about the transfiguration, we've got Elijah up there, too. We don't have any of the readings for Elijah in our pericope today. But he's one of the greatest prophets ever to live. Somehow less than Moses, certainly less than Jesus, but greater, it seems, than all the other prophets. I mean, my personal favorite prophet is Isaiah. Well, that's because his writing is so beautiful. But Elijah, like Moses, had a tough time with Israel. Because Israel was trying to kill Elijah And it's kind of weird how that happened. There were still a faithful remnant of people in Israel, but we see in Elijah's story how he's bemoaning the fact that he is all alone, that they've killed all of his brother prophets, and the people don't support him. I mean, he came to the point even where he had to be fed by ravens instead of the people of Israel, those faithful left. Just like Moses and just like Joshua, Elijah is. And somehow, Moses and Elijah are still brought to stand with Jesus in perhaps the clearest moment of all of Jesus's earthly life up until the resurrection of Jesus's divinity, his being the son of God. So how is it that these two imperfect men could stand with God in all of his glory and not be destroyed? We'll get back to that in a minute. How is it that we're here? We are called, certainly as children of God, but we're called by his word to be in this place, right? And if we take his word seriously, then all the commandments that Moses gave to the people of Israel stand also for us, because God's word is true always and forever. So, Let's take those Ten Commandments that we all know so well. The other 603 don't always apply because, well, we aren't the people of ancient Israel. But the Ten Commandments, we know we don't stand up to these, right? If we're going to say, are we a sinner or not, let's look at that. They tell us, do these things and you'll live, and we don't. We fail, as we've been talking about, in our own leadership. We fail even in our ability to follow after our leader. We don't treat God as if he's the only God. We certainly don't always honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We misuse God's name all the time. We don't obey the authorities that are over us. As much as we might argue with the things that they do, we should honor our government every single moment. We hate people in our hearts, and by doing so, we murder them. We lust after people, and so we commit adultery. We steal. We lie. We don't assume the best thing about people when they sin or or when they do something. And we just automatically jump to assuming the worst about them. We covet what we do not have. We covet who we do not have. There is no commandment of God that is presented before us that we can say, This at least have I kept. And yet we're called before God. Into this holy place. And, and this is a holy place because the word of God is read and meditated upon. And the sacraments are delivered here every time we gather together. We're called to this place. And if God is truly here, he should strike us dead. We expect to be like Moses, to not be allowed into the promised land. We expect to be like Joshua and have our friends and our family and the people around us who we love betray us at every moment because they just can't help themselves. And because of that, we expect God to strike us dead here too. But I've seen your faces week after week, and I know that God has not done that. He doesn't. That's not how God works. Instead, He welcomes us into this holy place. He brings us into His loving embrace through word and sacrament. He enters into you by your ears and by your eyes as you read and through your mouth as you receive Christ's body and blood and the holy sacrament. And for all of this, you should expect to die. I mean, Moses died in the wilderness because he struck a rock. You, a sinner literally chew upon the body and blood of Christ. That to me seems like it could almost be a worse thing, right? But still, you're not struck down. You're given life. You're given forgiveness. You're given salvation. And you're given that promise of a land that is greater than any kingdom of this world. For all of your sins, you are given the glory of God. How is that possible? It's possible in the very same way that Moses and Elijah stood with their divine Lord in that transfiguration moment. It's possible in the very same way that Peter and James and John were enveloped by the cloud of God and hearing his voice they did not die. It's Possible because the Son of God, the great prophet, priest, and king over all people died to forgive your sins. He died to take your unrighteousness away from you and to give you everlasting life. He died so that you might have the righteousness of God put upon you. So that not only is your sin taken away, but life and goodness and holiness and righteousness and everything that's a good gift of God is given to you. And you have this as a sure and certain thing. It's not some imaginary declarative statement that it's just kind of like I lived righteously, like I know I'm a sinner, but, you know, whatever. No, you've been given the real, the forensic, which means legal righteousness of Christ. It belonged to him and now it's yours. You're counted righteous. You know you're a sinner, but you have all the righteousness of Jesus. If you look in a mirror, you're going to see the law standing as your accuser and saying you don't deserve any of this. But Jesus doesn't look at you in the mirror. He sees you with his own two eyes in the light of his glory in the light that he had as he was hung upon that cross. And from there, he says, you are righteous. It's not like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. We can say that something is something else and it doesn't make it true. We can say that it's snowing 3 feet today here and it's not. That's not not the kind of declaration that Jesus puts on you. He says if he says it's snowing 3 feet today by his word, by his command, it would snow. But instead of saying something silly like that, he says, you are a righteous child of God. I love you. I welcome you into my presence forever and ever. It's a real and true thing that by his word, the entire universe, including your sinful flesh, bends to his will and you are made righteous. That's what the transfiguration is really about. It's to show you the glory that Jesus has as the Son of God. The glory found in His crucifixion. And the glory that's given to you this day and every day as His beloved child of God. That's what the transfiguration is about. So it doesn't matter if you're like Moses and Joshua and your failures in leadership or failures in your life. It doesn't matter if you're like Israel who failed to follow in the footsteps of God. It doesn't matter if you're like Peter who puts his foot in his mouth at any given moment. God has declared you righteous by the blood of Christ. And instead of striking you dead, he heaps life in. And life upon you. By the forgiveness of your sins, we're empowered to turn from our wicked ways and trust in the righteousness that he gives to us. Every time you remember Christ and his word and you remember your baptism and you receive the sacrament of the supper. Every time, every moment, every second that you remember that you belong to him, he gives you more of himself. Jesus in His transfiguration shows that He is the beloved divine Son of God, being of the same substance as the Father. He is God Himself. And if He can accept people in His midst like Moses and Elijah, like Peter and James and John, if He can be in heaven with all the saints who are now in their glory, He can also be with you. And He promises to be with you now and always. And you know that he can and he will fulfill that promise because he shows you that he is divine. And if he is divine, there is nothing he cannot do, including saving our sorry selves. So, be like Moses, be the failure. Be like Joshua, be the failure, and know that your Lord has brought you here this day not to look at your failure, but to forgive it and to give you every good gift under heaven, forgiveness, life, and salvation, the good gifts of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.